we have bases in most other countries around the world, where we have a thousand military bases in other people's countries, where we have six or seven wars going at a time, where we are putting as much money into this thing as everybody else put together. And, and when you look at the impact that that machine is having on our economy, on our civil liberties, on our representative government, on the natural environment, uh, in terms of nuclear and other dangerous proliferation, and in terms of blowback and animosity being generated around the world, in eight different ways it's not sustainable. It's going to kill us to keep this machine going. What I did in the book was to look at the lies that were told before, during, and after wars through history, and instead of chronicling and listing them all, which would get endless and repetitive, I picked out common themes so that you could recognize similar lies to the themes that have been used before. Um, and so in Chapter 1, for example, I look at the idea that, that war is needed to combat evil. And evil, I think, remains absolutely essential propaganda for war today. Um, the demonization, the racism, the religious bigotry, the, the, the way that people of the Middle East have been depicted uh, in this country uh, so that we're terrified even of locking them up in a prison in this country. We're only safe if they're in Cuba. You know, it, it is, is a very big part of what generates support for these wars, or at least did. Of course, we now have a majority against the wars. Um, I mean, this, this is another reason why I wanted to write this book. We had, arguably, when we started the war in Afghanistan and the one in Iraq, a majority of Americans saying, yes, go do it. And now, for, for a long time now, we've had clear majorities saying, nope, never should have done it. Right? It was a mistake. Uh, and, and somehow we have to get there faster because we do have two-thirds of Americans wanting to end these wars and nobody in Washington, D.C., remotely interested. Right? I mean, they just passed yet again, and this makes three out of three for President Obama, the biggest military budget we've seen, um, depending on how you slice it, at least since World War II. Can we get a majority that understands immediately, not years later after thousands of deaths? Um, and, and so at the same time that you have a certain segment of the population dependent on the idea that our wars are benefiting people, right? That we're bombing women for women's rights, that we're that we're engaged in humanitarian philanthropic efforts for our wars, which is it's in, it's very encouraging that we need to say those things. But at the same time, you have another segment of the US population that, you know, wants to wipe all those non-English speaking, non-Christian, dark-skinned people off the face of the earth. And without that, you would lose a huge measure of support for these wars. Uh, and so this idea that somehow there are things so evil in the world that can that they can only be addressed with wars has to be addressed. Right? I mean this is the this is the very realistic, serious uh, approach of pundits on our televisions, right? If you're serious you'll recognize that there is evil in the world, right? To to propose that we not have wars anymore is just fantasy. I mean, we have a president who told us this in a Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech, right? I mean, the first one on record that more or less denounced peace. Uh, if, you're, if you're serious, if you're realistic, then you have to understand that we might need wars. Why? Because there are evil things in the world. Well, of course there are. War's the most evil one. 
uh, you know, there's nothing worse than war that you can substitute war for. Uh, and so that remains a huge part of the argument because it's very effective propaganda. It's very emotional. It, it drives people's energy. The second sort of theme that I look at <coughs> is the idea that wars are defensive, right? And this is the long-standing traditional argument to legalize and legitimize wars is the idea that they're fought in defense, right? Uh, North Korea attacked South Korea, even though it looks like it, it was actually the other way around, and therefore the United States needs to have a war thousands of miles away. Or Mexico attacked us when, of course, actually we attacked Mexico, so we have to have a war. Or there's an impoverished nation halfway around the globe that's never attacked us, uh, but we can pretend that they had something to do with 9-11, and so we'll fight a defensive war against them. Right? All of our wars are defensive. <clears throat> almost all wars are defensive from almost all sides, uh, according to the propaganda. That has to be addressed, right? Because if we were to actually have a defensive war, right, if we were actually attacked, everybody would know it. There would be no need for any argument whatsoever. Right? But it's all the arguments about how the wars are defensive that we have to start analyzing and seeing through. And if you look at all the past ones, you start to recognize the themes in the new ones. Uh, and the other most common one, of course, is we're about to win. We're just about to win. We're, we, progress is right around the corner. But it's fragile and reversible. But it's right around the corner. You know, I mean, this is we've been given this for a decade, monthly, in Afghanistan. I mean, it... it the, the, the biggest, you know, the, the biggest lie is is about what the wars consist of and whether they are making things better or worse, right? Because it's our wars, it's our drone strikes that are driving the resistance to our occupations and the hostility towards our nation and the terrorist attacks. Uh, and, and we use this cycle, we use the reactions to our wars as justifications for the wars. Uh, and then... As we accomplish some military objective, we declare that there's progress and things are getting better and we're about to succeed and then we'll be able to pull out or more often then we'll have to stay longer. But in either case, there's progress right around the corner, uh, which in the case of Afghanistan has been demonstrably, empirically false for several years now, uh, under, widely understood, and yet they just keep saying it and doing it. You know, we have motivations for war that are that are not very deeply hidden. Um, you know that they will tell you quite openly that they need to have a gas pipeline through Afghanistan. You don't, you know, you don't need to, to speculate about it. Um, the propaganda that drives these wars has become since since President Wilson, since World War One, uh, incredibly professional. Uh, very, very well thought out, scientifically planned. I mean, that this science of manipulating people's emotions uh, has been developed to an incredible degree, and it's not switched on and off. It's constant. It's steady. It doesn't come for for World War One and then stop again for the for the twenties and the thirties, where you have this incredible pushback against wars. It, it's just there, steadily. The, the, you know, this, the Libyan rebels, this handful of, of heroic grassroots heroes led by a guy who mysteriously spent 20 years with no visible means of support living a couple of miles from the CIA in northern Virginia, they have hired, at no cost, the biggest PR firm in Washington, D.C., and they've planned to, they, they, they've promised to pay them when they're rich. 
the, the government of Libya tried to hire me to do their lobby. You know, a guy who works from his house in Charlottesville. I mean, this is this tells you who is going to control the message about a war. The other thing is that in many of the countries that I've mentioned because we're bombing them uh, or that are part of the, the Arab Spring or that have their own troubles around the world, uh, people tend to stand for a lot less than we've been standing for. Um, I mean, we do have people like who are willing to get arrested speaking against the co- practices of coal corporations, and that's great. Uh, but for the most part, in comparison to other countries, we sit back and take it. Right? I mean, we have we have overwhelming majorities in this country who want to end wars, cut the military, tax billionaires, all sorts of things that are just completely off the radar screen in Washington. Um, well, we're taking the example of Tunisia and Egypt and Greece and Spain and Madison, Wisconsin, for that matter, and we're going to Washington in October not to have a march or a rally but to occupy the place and shut down the buildings and stay. Uh, and if you'd like to learn more about that and come, try to remember this one, october2011.org, october2011.org.